I've told you guys that I uh, enjoy coaching. I had a lot of coaches throughout my life that I enjoyed. I remember one coach, probably one of my favorite coaches in high school was my basketball coach, my junior or senior year. Uh, very helpful, uh, very knowledgeable about the game of basketball, but also very helpful to guide and learn and uh, to teach new skills and to come alongside uh, of me and help me think about my position and how I fit into this team and my role that I played on this team, uh, as, as well as just guiding me through each individual game and how to respond. So if we take a time out and we're thinking about what do we what do we need to do and where do we need to go with this, uh, but I do remember. One time we were playing terrible in the first half of uh, the game. We're playing at a, a away game, so someone else's gym. But the locker room was right off the gym, and we were playing terrible that first half. We all come into the locker room. He comes in after us uh, and just kicks the trash can, kicks it aggressively, uh, and he starts yelling. I think that was simultaneously. But when he kicked the trash can, Dr. Pepper shot up on his face because there was a can in there, and it was sitting there, and we uh, couldn't contain ourselves. Like, he's yelling at us, but all we want to do is laugh in his face because he just keeps pushing through. Like, he doesn't even notice what's happening, but we all see what's happening on his face. Now, coaches, I tell you that to tell you I like coaches. I don't know why I give you a bad story about my coach, but I do like him. I still talk to him to this, to this day. But coaches uh, teach you the game. They help you learn the skills of the game. They guide you in those individual games. And, and I say that really to say this. James, if maybe we could take this, this vantage point, we could see James as our coach. And I, I, I don't want to say this phrase, but, but a life coach and all the positive, real, beautiful things that I mean by that. I mean that he's actually coaching you not in a game, but coaching you in life, in everyday life. How do I live? How do I learn uh, these skills? How do I grow in this living? How, how, how do I do this wisely and for the glory of God and, and to serve and benefit the relationships that I'm a part of? And that's what James is. And so maybe, maybe what I'm inviting you to is not to stiff arm James, uh, not only to, to hear uh, some of his pithy, practical things that he says, but actually to take it in as, as a loving coach that is there with you in your life, knowing what's going on in your life, with your relationships, with your parenting, with your work, and he's going to tell you and coach you, this is where you should go. This is what this should look like. That he's, he's trying to help you and guide you in this path of life. So James 1, verse 19 Hear your coach. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. And James doesn't write like Paul. He writes like a coach, he writes like the book of Proverbs. And so he's pithy and practical, just this wisdom for everyday life, very practical wisdom. And he states something that we all need to understand, this little proverb. And it's good for all of our relationships. We should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This is wisdom for your 
your marriage, your parenting, your relationships, your community group, your workplace. If a friend must show himself to be friendly, then being friendly looks like being slow to speak and quick to listen, being slow to anger. A lot of being a good friend is asking meaningful questions and listening intently to the person. That that in itself is a gift to the people in our lives, is asking meaningful, good questions that get beyond just shallow, shallow superficial, kind of what's happening uh, this week, uh, what are the things that you have affinity for, to actually meaningful questions about our lives, our hearts, what are we feeling, what are we thinking, what are we struggling with, what are we celebrating, what are we discouraged by. That's a gift to ask those questions and to listen intently, to give them our presence and our mind uh, with them and to be there with them and to hear from them and be curious about what's going on and what to love them. That's considering them more important than ourselves. So on the flip, if you want to isolate yourself and lose friends and escalate conflict, then listen little and talk much. Listen little, talk much. Proverbs says, though, that's foolishness. It's foolishness. So, again, we see the juxtaposition of wisdom and folly in the book of James as he is very similar to the book of Proverbs. It is wise to be quick to listen and slow to speak. It's foolish to be quick to speak and slow to listen. Or as Proverbs 18.2 says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I feel like I'm 64 if I say this, but should it be called full book instead of Facebook? I <laughs> get it. Because this is what it sounds like. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 18:13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 25, counsel in a person's heart is deep water, but a person of understanding draws it out. We are to be quick to listen and slow to speak. That quick to listen is really the phrase, hurry up and listen. Hurry up to listen. And as you meditate on this pithy proverb from James, and don't just skim the surface, but meditate on it. It gets into our hearts. This is more than quick advice. This exposes us. It, it reveals the ways that we struggle with listening. This, we all, everyone needs to understand this because everyone struggles at some point with actually listening to others, loving in such a way that we want to hear and be present with and understand what's going on with them. So here's a little list. It's not comprehensive, but maybe it primes the prompt a little bit to get you thinking about our quickness to speak and our slowness to listen. So why? If we meditate on this, why does James need to tell this? What is this exposing in our hearts? Well, number one, we're selfish. We're selfish. This weaves through every other point, but we're self-concerned and focused on our thoughts, our desires, our ways, our plans, our expertise, our stories, our approval. 
So we don't, we're, we're slow to listen because we are quick to think about ourselves. Secondly, this looks like number two, selfishness. We don't listen well because we're consumed with what we're going to say next. That's what we're thinking about. That's how selfish we are. We're not listening to what the person is telling us. We're actually thinking about talking to ourselves internally or forming <laughs> our words in our minds and not listening to our friend. We're listening to ourselves, actually, functionally believing what we think and what we have to say is much more important than what they're actually saying right then. Number three, we don't listen because we already know what the person is going to say, or we think we know. We assume their intent, their experiences, their circumstances, their thoughts, their feelings, their beliefs. We hear like the first few words of what they're saying, and we already jump to, all right, I know what they're going to say. Let me start thinking about what am I going to respond with. Or we project our stuff on them, and we want to be efficient. And so we rush the conversation thinking we already get it. Oh, yeah, I've dealt with the kind of same thing in my past. I, I get it. Let me just give you what, what I learned. Boom, done. Let's get over this. So we don't listen. Number four, we don't listen because we're distracted. Distracted by phones, TVs, our to-do list, our fantasies, what we're going to do next. Tony Reinke in his book, 12 Ways Your, Your Phone Is Changing You, writes this. In a meeting or a classroom, so think something uh, more uh, intimate and, 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 and personable. A meeting or a classroom. If my phone is put away, I am more likely to be perceived as engaged. If my phone is not in use but is face up on the table, I present myself as engaged for the moment but possibly disengage if someone more important outside the room needs me. And if my phone is in my hand and I'm responding to texts and scrolling social media, I project open dismissiveness because dividing attention is a typical expression of disdain. I'm not going to give you my undivided attention. I'm actually divided because... I actually have disdain for you and what you're talking about. This is why we don't listen. Another one, I think we don't listen because we're bored. We're so selfish, we're, we're not entertained or interested in what this other person is saying. And so we don't, we tune them out. Number six, we lack compassion. We see people as objects rather than humans made in the image of God, and so we don't have compassion for them. We don't know if anything, any, any person's in that body in front of us, that they're just kind of puppets in our, uh, our world. It only matters like how they interact with us or how they view us or how it's going with us. And so we don't feel what's going on with them or consider what's going on in them. Or we don't want to enter into this conversation because we know it's going to take work and compassion to endure the conversation, to love them and serve them. It's going to mean sacrifice. Number seven, lastly, we don't listen to others because we haven't talked to God, so we're going to people to cast our cares, our anxieties, our plans on them instead of talking taking them to God. Does that make sense? 
if you don't take your cares, your anxieties to God, you're going to take them somewhere. And if you take them to a friend and pour all of it on them as if they're like your little Messiah, they're your functional savior, that they're going to be the one that rescue you, then you're going to put them in a place that they can't handle. And you're not going to listen to them because you've made them the person that has to listen to you and carry all of your burdens. Now, these things expose us, but also show us that a few techniques won't fix them. These aren't just uh, little behaviors that need to be tweaked. These are signs of heart problems. Being quick to listen flows out of love of neighbor. And so if we're not quick to listen, what's, what's happening is we're not loving our neighbor. We're most likely loving our self. And so no matter what techniques you implement, it's not going to change really at the heart your problem with listening. What needs to happen deeper than the action, deeper than the behavior is at the heart level. We need to repent of our selfishness and infatuation, obsession with ourselves and our lack of love for others. And believe the gospel that we're more sinful than we think, but in Christ we are more loved than we can imagine. That out of his pounding love for us, he made us new. That's back to the, the passage before. He birthed us by his word. He, we're born again by God out of his pounding love for us. He makes us his very own beloved sons and daughters. And so we can turn from our selfishness and center our hearts on the one who ferociously loves us and knows us. In Life Together, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes and instructs us, just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. So it's kind of both sides. If you're struggling with the listening, it's because you don't love them, but also you don't love them because you're not listening to them. So James is coaching us to be slow to speak, quick to listen. But there's another slowness that he advocates for, that he uh, tells us this is, this is the direction you need to go. And what direction is that? Slow to anger. So I, I, I wanted to unpack a little bit of the listening, but just to be very clear, we all know the destructive nature of fits of rage, subtle disdain, bubbling irritation, cold shoulders, the silent treatment, disciplining kids out of anger, flying off the handle in an argument. James makes it very clear, pointedly clear, that anger... It's typically about people not acting like you want them to act or not thinking like you. They don't act like you and they don't think like you. And you get really angry because you want them to be like you. 
or maybe you get really angry at them because they are interrupting your worship of an idol, and so they're getting in the way of the thing that you want the most that's not God, and so your anger pours out on them. All to say, human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Or if I could say differently, relationally, your anger doesn't produce sanctification in that other person. It doesn't. You don't rage your wife into Christ-likeness. You can't yell your kids into holiness. You can scare them into shallow obedience, but the gospel woos hearts. It doesn't bully people into behavior modification. Are you with me? Can your kids hear me? Human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. If we meditate on God's word here, it will lead us into the path of wisdom in our everyday relationships. And while this proverb, verse 19 and 20, can be generally applied to all of our relationships. Do you know what the context really here is? Of being quick to listen and slow to speak. You know what the context is? God's word. It's God's word. The word is mentioned multiple times in this paragraph. So take that list from above of why we don't listen to others seven things that I listed, and no, that also applies to you and God. Why don't you listen to God? I think all seven of those would probably also apply there. And so really the big point of this first section in its context is be slow to speak and quick to listen to God's word. To what he says. Verse 21 continues, therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So this is quick to listen to God's word and also humbly receive the implanted word. That ridding yourselves, this is like clearing out weeds. So clear out the weeds and humbly receive the word. Or to say it Differently, like Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, this is repentance. This is put off and put on. Turn from and turn to. Clear out moral filth and evil. And if you're with us a few weeks ago, you know that this takes us back to uh, the evil desires in our hearts. Where, Where does sin come from? Not from God. He doesn't tempt us. It comes from our own evil desires that gives birth to sin, that then gives birth to death. It's hard to listen to God's word when you have your headphones on. Or it's folly, unwise, to plant a new flower in your flower bed when that flower bed is full of weeds. You actually have to clear it out. You have to pull up the weeds. You you can't be content with the evil desires and the sin in your heart and then just say, hey, I need a little bit uh, uh, of maybe a, a verse 
from the Bible this morning, and I'll just kind of throw it in there with all this other stuff on a Tuesday, and it'll be fun. Now, you have to do the work of pulling up the weeds, clearing out the flower bed, the sexual sin, the over-drinking, the overeating. He's saying the moral filth and evil, the gossip, the fear of man that's in your heart, the laziness, the lying, the false teaching, the self-righteousness, the arrogance. Like your neighbor who has a wonderful flower bed, or you, I don't know why it has to be your neighbor, that flower bed didn't magically happen. A gardener must do the hard work of pulling weeds out of the ground. And what I'm saying is, us, Christian we must do the hard work of pulling sin out of our hearts. And humbly receive the implanted word, James says. So you, you not only clear out the garden of your heart, because then it would just be like, what, open dirt? No, you also receive the word. One author states that, Humble reception is the ingredient for your soul's soil. You see that imagery? Like if you want good soil that's going to receive the word, humble reception, he says, is that ingredient that, that tills it up, that that's maybe the, the miracle grow that you throw in your uh, 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 dirt. It's humble reception. So humbly receive the implanted word. I mean, just like arrogant selfishness hinders you from listening to others speak, I mean, all seven things I said earlier, right? Really hinders you from listening to others speak. When you're self-focused, self-important, arrogant. So arrogant selfishness will hinder you from receiving God's word. I, I have a kid right now in that stage of arguing with us of, of how much he uh, knows, as in he knows more than us, and also he argues that at times he knows better than us, and uh, you know, I like to argue that one because I disagree. I wholeheartedly disagree. Now, if you're talking about a very inane or specific subject that he's really into, sure, you know more than me, but in general... In general, he doesn't. But, but what I'm saying is that's the posture of our arrogant heart towards God. God, we know more than you. God, we know better than you. Then why do we need to listen to you? Do you see the logic there? Do you see the flow, how it just progresses? I don't need you because I know more than you. I don't need to hear from you because what I think and how I see the world is better than how you understand the world. I don't need to listen. I can maybe flippantly skim through this, but I don't really need to listen. That soil is not prepped to receive the word. So humble yourself. Be quick to listen, but then humbly receive. So that means we have to humble ourselves. And, and what I think a specific confession uh, uh, of that would look like would be this. God, 
I do not know more than you. I think that's very clearly a prayer that looks like a contrite heart coming to God, humbling yourself before him, that God, I do not know more than you. God, I do not know better than you. God, the world and all the influences that are in my life don't know more than you. God, the world doesn't know better than you. That, that's, that's humility. That's humbly coming to him saying, I need you to speak to me. I need to hear from you. I need your word. I need your uh, uh, worldview to take over mine so I can see the world clearly as you see it. So the context of being quick to listen and slow to speak is in the context of God's word. But if we zoom out even a little bit further, we see a deeper context that this is not only your relationship to God's word, it's also your relationship to God's word in the midst of trials. James has not completely jumped off the boat into some completely different topic. In the whole chapter of one, he's talking about various trials that we're going to experience. And he said, you got to come to a point when you experience these trials that you're going to be tempted. You can't say, God, you tempt me. You have to understand where your sin comes from and deal with your sin and, and fight your sin. But he's also going to say, in the midst of your trials, so you're also going to come to a spot where you're going to wrestle with, is God speaking to me? Is what he says good? Do I need to hear from this? Because when we're in our trials, we're so often tempted to pull away from God, to cower from him, to not think he is good and powerful, so we don't want to listen to him, we don't hear from him, we don't go to him, we don't crawl up in his lap. And James is saying, no, no, no. Stop talking about your trials. Stop trying to justify everything. Stop going down all those rabbit trails. Be slow to talk and be quick to listen to me. Come to God to humbly hear from him and to listen to him, to receive whatever he is going to tell you. We can't go down the path that we believe that God is against us in our trials or to completely fall out the rhythm of practicing the spiritual disciplines. James is saying that path is folly. The wise path in the midst of your trials, and I know it can be hard to hear it if you're in it right now, but the wise path in the midst of your trials is to hurry up and listen to God speak and humbly receive his word. But it doesn't stop there. James is too good of a coach for it to stop there. You can't just hear it and receive it. You must act on it. So verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's a bold statement. I told you he doesn't mince words. He's pithy, practical, little, confrontational. If you only hear God's word, and don't do it, you're deceiving yourselves. So on James' one hand, there's foolish options. You don't listen, you only speak, you throw fits in your trials, driven by anger, you listen 
only or you listen only and receive only. Those are actually all the foolish options on James' one hand. And on the other hand is the wise option. Listen, receive, and do. That's the wisdom. That's the one wise option you have in the midst of your trials, in your relationship with God's word. Listen, receive, and do God's word. And Jesus said it this way in his Sermon on the Mountain, which, which I told you, James uh, is an expert in his half-brother's Sermon on the Mount, also the book of Proverbs. Jesus said this, Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. So that's it's the wise path, right? The exact same thing James has said. Not just hear my words, but actually do them. You have a solid foundation when the storm uh, of trials come at you and beat at your house. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, pounded that house, it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. He's not saying the person whose foundation is sandy comes from not hearing from me. He's saying the person's foundation is sandy is the one who hears from me, but it actually doesn't do it. And I think... That's a problem. Like, I'm concerned about that for many of us, where many of us have been around Christianity and the church for a while, and we've been duped, deceived over time, where we're hearers. We're hearers. We've settled for programmatic Christianity where we attend events, attend events and listen to the word taught and preached, but then we leave and forget what was said and don't do what is said. Christianity is, is a lifestyle. It's an all-encompassing way of life, a, a life of following Jesus throughout our, our days and our weeks and our months, not just little compartments here and there. Our entire life, living out, doing what he has said in all of life. That's why I call this wisdom for everyday life. Now, three Chinese pastors wrote a book on the house church called Back to Jerusalem. And they, they get at this, this, this thought from James a little bit. At the end of the book, they challenge the reader with the difference between uh, believers and disciples. People who say they believe in Jesus and people who really are following Jesus. And this is what they write. True disciples are usually people that few understand. They are viewed as potentially unstable fanatics. Often the same governments that tolerate the existence of mere believers will stop at no ends to completely eradicate any disciples within their borders. What they're saying is that the Chinese government doesn't really care about people who listen to God's word. Who cares? Doesn't matter. But they want to actively expel those who are doing the word. A disciple does the word, follows his master, lives like his master. And that person is radical, is, is someone to be expelled. Because this is 
serious. A, a disciple doesn't keep asking for another, another Bible study, another Bible study, another Bible study when they haven't obeyed the previous one. With the amount of resources and teaching at our fingers, I think we are uh, a bit in a... Uh, precarious situation where we can learn all these new things but never actually live any of these things. We can be mere hearers who like hearing things and being taught new things but don't commit to the hard gardening work of pulling weeds and planting seeds. We don't do the word. And James gives us a simile to make his point. Verse 23. Because if anyone is hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. So he's saying... If you listen and humbly receive only, you're like someone who wakes up, goes to the bathroom, looks in the mirror, and you look like a character from The Walking Dead, and you're like, cool, I'm going to go out like this. No problems. That's how crazy it is to only listen to God's word and not do it. Do you, do you wake up and you see how, like, jacked up your face and your eyes are and, and you know, your beard's all over the place or whatever? Your eyeliner is, you cried last night, so it's all down here. And you're like, whatever. And you walk out and you don't do anything about it. You say, that, that, that's how wild it is. We don't do that. So why do we do that with God's word? We can't look at it and walk away and be like, nah, I forget what that is. And I'm not going to put this into practice. No, a mirror shows you what you look like, show you what's off so that you can fix it, so you can do something about it. When you look at God's word, it shows you his love and instruction. It exposes where you're off, where you're missing the mark, and you do something about it. I mean, if you're anxious in your trials, so let's go back to trials. If you're anxious in your trials, you don't look at the mirror of 1 Peter 5 that says, cast your cares on God because he cares for you, and you walk away forgetting the instruction. Or if you're heavy, sad in your trials, you don't look at the mirror of the lament psalms and say, I'm sure it'd really be good for John to lament. No, you lament. We are to be a people who are quick to listen to God's word, humbly receive God's word, and do God's word. Yet we know when we feel this, we feel this weight of actually doing God's word, you know you can't do this on your own strength. We need the power of the gospel to change us and empower us to obey God's word. Grace to forgive us for not doing God's word. And grace to empower us to repent and to begin to obey because God loves us, not because we're trying to get God to love us. We need that grace that grace and love from Jesus who perfectly obeyed his father in our place. He said that God's word was his very food. 
He says at the end of his life, before he dies, that I did everything that the Father commanded me. I only did what he told me. He listened and did what the Father told him in your place. And that, that act, that righteous action of his is imputed to you by the gospel. And so that's how the Father sees you. So then the gospel frees us to obey God, frees you from your selfishness, and woos you to say yes, not to yourself, but to your Savior. So we can hear and do the word empowered by the gospel of grace. That's good news for us. That we would be quick to listen because we know the Father has the best words. That we'd humbly receive the implanted word because we know that God knows more than us and he also knows better than us. And we also obey his word because he knows the best way to live. If I can use that, I know it's, it's, it's crass or very humanly speaking, but he, God, is the best coach. No one else knows more about the game, knows more about life, knows more about all the skills needed to live this life than him. So he has the best vantage point, the best person uh, in authority to tell you where you should go, what you should do, what you should learn, how you should live. There are three practical questions that I ask myself when I get into these kind of situations. Situations meaning uh, hearing the word, hearing someone teach hearing someone talk, reading uh, the word. It's these three questions that I, I hope just may be very practical, simple, and helpful for you. Three things I ask myself. What is God showing me? Not, not what I'm thinking about, not even necessarily what this person is saying, but what is the word saying? What is the spirit speaking to me? What is going on? What is God showing me? And then number two, what am I going to do about it? So I don't be deceived, duped, and be a hearer only, and be a person who is maybe a professional listener. I have spent 10,000 hours as a Christian listening to other people speak about the Bible and about God. I'm really proficient in listening. I am a novice in obeying. That's not where I want us to be. To take that move from hearing only to actually hearing and obeying. What am I going to do about it? And then three, who am I going to tell? Who am I going to tell about this? That can be because you want them to hear what God is showing you. It can also be for accountability, that they, you say, this is what I'm going to do about this. I want you to know that. I want you to hold me to that. So that we move from being deceived people who hear only to actually hear and obey. I'll sum all this up with Proverbs 8.32. I want you to hear this and receive this and think about this. The context is really a father and wisdom talking to children. Proverbs 8.32. And so my children listen to me. For all who follow my ways are joyful. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Don't ignore it. Joyful are those who listen to me, watching for me daily at my gates, 
waiting for me outside my home. Forever finds me, finds life, and receives favor from the Lord. But those who miss me injure themselves. All who hate me love death. Wisdom is calling us to pursue, to listen, to learn, and do. Let's pray. Father, I pray that whatever disconnect there is for us in our, our souls of hearing and doing, whether that be motivation, whether that be our sinful wills choosing other things, whether it be just terrible habits as well that are going on. And I pray that you would work in us and you would take what, what only we have divided and, and put back together what, what you have together, and that is the response of hearing and obeying your word. So we ask you to work in us this morning to change us. That's our, our expectation, Lord, when we come to your word, when we come to corporate worship, we expect, long for, trust that you're going to change us and work in us and keep uh, uh, knocking off the rough edges of our heart and uh, keep working to empower us to pull out the weeds, the sin in our heart, to turn and to humbly receive your word. So we pray for that, Lord. While we're separate in different places all over this city, we know that you're at work. We ask for you to work in us and transform us more and more into the image of Jesus, we pray. Amen.